Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, welcome to Just Make the Thing. I'm Claire Tonti, and this is a show for people who want to start a thing and keep on making it. Today, I'm joined by Damon Gamow actor, writer, and director. You might know him from the TV shows Love My Way, Underbelly, or Barlabo and Wentworth, or you might recognize him as the director and writer of that sugar film currently on stand, which came to be Australia and New Zealand's highest grossing doco. It also has two cameos from Hugh Jackman and Stephen Fry. It's brilliant. It changed the conversation about sugar that we all were having. It's an expose into what it does to our bodies and the big conglomerates that have a big say in why sugar is in so many of the foods that we deem as healthy. It's crazy what happened to Damon's body over the 60 days that he ate a high content of sugar. This year, he's launched a new film, 2040, which tackles the climate crisis in his signature, playful and positive way. It's a letter to his gorgeous four-year-old daughter, Velvet. His wife, Zoe, as well, you might recognize from the TV show Winners and Losers, is a part of the film as she is in that sugar film. He talks a lot about her in this episode and oh, it's just gorgeous to hear his perspective on love. Damon is immediately a human that is so present and across the crisis and and what we need to do to tackle climate change. But what really struck me is what we've come to know on this show. He talks about how to make art and why the creative process absolutely needs us to really understand ourselves and change the way that we talk to ourselves about what we do. He understands that we create our best work when we are vulnerable and allow others to know and understand our weaknesses. And what makes art great is the creator's willingness to let go of ego and say, here I am, here is my humanity in all its awkward, wonderful weirdness. What we think, the words we use, what we tell ourselves matters. We matter. Our actions matter. And that's what Damon really wants you to know, I think, and what I took from our conversation. The choices we make really do make a difference. So let's go out there and make some good ones for our planet. Here he is, Damon Gamow. I wanted to ask you first, for our show, we look at where creativity starts, Hmm. really. And before we go back into the environment, I wanted to ask you that. Where did your creativity start? I don't know. I guess I feel like creativity is innate in everybody. I think we, you know, you see most children have that and it's just how much you suppress it or cloud it over or limit yourself with your own thoughts or doubts. I think, I think that's a bit plays Mm -hmm. a big role. And I certainly realized that probably in my twenties that gee whiz, some of the things I was telling myself internally were pretty limiting that, you know, who was I to do this or you're not good enough or this idea won't matter, you get laughed at, all those things that, you know, we do wrestle with. And uh, I just sort of looked for ways to try and undo those and unravel from those. And, and once I did find ways, it was just incredible what, you know, what bursts forth when you actually let it come out. So I, I'm not sure that I know where creativity comes from. I, I think it's, yeah, like I said, I think it's deeply embedded in all of us. It's just 
how much access we each have to it is probably the key. Um, I think you get everyone get any, give everyone a bit of paper or hum a song in their car and make up the words. Everyone's capable of doing it. It's just whether you whether you're prepared to have the courage to do it, you know, in an outward fashion or yeah. um, <laughs> just uh, in the shower. Yeah, to feel that it's okay. But I, you know, I really think it's important at the moment that we, that people find that, and I. I often think about how, you know, with social media now, how limiting it is and how much it keeps us just bombarded with information and it's shutting down that part of our brain that is um, conducive to creativity and mm. thinking and imagination. We're, we're not giving ourselves enough idle time anymore just to sit and be creative. And, you know, I think some of the great works of art or books written wouldn't have been written if people, you know, if Van Gogh had come home and put the sunflowers on the table and then picked up his Instagram feed and <laughs> scrolled through it. I don't think he would have ever seen the, the sunflowers in the same way and, um, and, and painted them. So it, it's an interesting time as much as social media and technology is doing as good things. I think there are obviously some limitations to it and, and one of those areas is is creativity for some people. Mm. Yeah. What kind of kid were you like? I was pretty happy. I was pretty, pretty buoyant, probably quite annoyingly happy sometimes. <laughs> um, I was pretty jovial uh, and then – Quite bossy. I think I like to be in control. I was an only child, so I think I um, reports are that I like to get my own way. <laughs> that stands in good stead. <laughs> I'd like, for directing, to, I'd like I guess. to say I've let that go of it, but I'm not sure that I have. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and um, but yeah, then I had also, you know, as most kids do, I had sort of a bit of trauma that came in at some point, which complicated things a bit and sort of crushed that spirit. I think for a while, and it probably buried it for quite a few years of my life, and then mm-hmm. I took a while to try and recapture that and find that essence again. I think it was always in there, but it was just um, covered over and, and muted by, again, some of the, the, the behaviours that I'd ingrained or the, the, the lack of the fear around vulnerability or actually putting yourself out there, which I think yeah. a lot of people can relate with. It's, you know, it can be a scary world sometimes and you, um, people are reluctant to actually show who they really are and what they want to contribute to the world mm. and... Um, yeah, I think if we're going to get through some of the problems we're facing now, we, we desperately need people to find an authenticity and we're sort of craving it. We're, society's really needing it at the moment. Mm, definitely. Do you mind talking about what happened when you talk about trauma? Oh, no, it was just um, like just around sort of, you know, parental things and, um, you know, very common sort of uh, splits and fighting over children and law courts and all those sort of things that, that a lot of kids go through these days and, making decisions and, and having, I guess, your the, the, the sort of the strength and the rock of, of that foundation being stripped apart and issues of abandonment and insecurities, all the things that come with that, which I think um, unfortunately play a lot of um, adults and children, but we don't acknowledge it in the way we should. I mean, I think even you look at how we deal with family law at the moment, it's, it is very much from a lawyer perspective and um, some of it I think should be looked at through a health lens, you know, in terms of the... Mm. The ripple effects of some of these things that kids go through these days and what impact it's probably having on them as adults, we just don't acknowledge that at all, really. And I think it's um, it's a current that plays through a lot of society. Yeah. Mm. How did you find that pathway? Because you talked about dismantling some of those learnt behaviours or learnt mm. thought patterns. What did you do? <laughs> yeah, it was a combination of things. So it, 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 the catalyst was a was a trauma, like quite. I, know, I remember just sort of a moment where I thought, "Oh, this is not it." You know, this is this life thing is not um, something's missing. There was something um, that was, I wasn't connecting with, and so I just started talking to a couple of people that I just had something different about them. They seemed to be standing outside 
reality a little bit and sort of held a space and there was a calmness to them and tranquility that I, I was interested in, in exploring. And they suggested a few books and then a few meditation practices. And I ended up doing a 10-day silent retreat, the Vipassana retreat when I was 26. And then that tipped into sort of more psychedelic experiments and ayahuasca in the Amazon and um, psilocybin and things like that. And then actual courses and counseling. So going to do things with my mom and you know dad and really understanding my patterns of behavior and how I operate. And um, I guess just that self-exploration over time, just I just really got to know myself at a deep level and what makes me tick and, and the programs that I um, am driven by, the story that I tell myself of who I am. And uh, once I started unhooking from that and rewriting that story, then um, it was amazing. I just um, felt a real, not only strength of character, but also an, um, a real thirst to tell my own stories and um, put myself in the world and share things that I care about, which I'd often been um, scared to do. So um, I think that really helped in terms of filmmaking and whatnot, to, to mm. especially being an actor for so long, telling other people's stories, to then feel this sense of empowerment that, no, it was time to tell my own stories and, and what do I want to say about the world. Mm. Where does Zoe fit into that kind of trajectory? Yeah, my wife Zoe, she's a, a huge part of that. So uh, up until I'd met her, I was 33 and... I hadn't had a relationship longer than three or four months, you know, which was quite telling <laughs> as to what kind of person I was. Uh, very good at the honeymoon period. And then I, when it came to being vulnerable, it was like, okay, time yeah. to pack up the shop and run away. Yeah. So I met Zoe and uh, I just knew it was one of those, you know, those cliches where I just thought, yeah, this is, this is someone that I think I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. But I just knew I wasn't ready to be with her. I, I just – she was – one of those people that just seemed to be slightly vibrating at a different <laughs> frequency and a different yeah. type of person, that, and and I thought, yeah, I, yeah, my lifestyle's not gonna not going to be compatible for that. So that was a big part of it, um, wanting to to be a better person so that I could be with a woman like that. So yeah, she was a huge motivation for that, and and even now I find that you know when when I'm away from her, I can very easily drift into old patterns and and try and fill up a a hole somewhere. But when I'm with her, just yeah, no, none of that stuff kicks in. I feel very centered and um, at peace. So that's how I know she's the right person. Yeah, gosh, don't we all want that? I think. Yeah. What do you remember the first? time you met her oh, of course yeah yeah absolutely and um i was actually making a film in east timor we we're doing a film called balabo and it was uh we'd been there for about a month and it was our last night and uh she just arrived and she was there visiting her father who was living in east timor at the time and, and she was making a documentary with a friend and yeah it's just one of those again the cliche i just saw her and went well, okay yep this is this is it there's just something about her that um i knew that I was um, drawn to and we had a conversation for about an hour and that really sealed the deal for me. I mean, she was seeing someone else at the time, but I knew that um, there was going to be a way that we would get together somehow and uh, we did get together about six months later. So, Yeah. How did you – how did it happen? I'm now I'm just like crying <laughs> to your love life. How did that happen though? So she's seeing someone else and you're in East Timor. Yeah, did and you... she – well, I'd been living overseas for a couple of years doing um, – I did a job in Ireland as an actor and then I was in America as well. And while I was away for those two years, she'd befriended a lot of my friends in Australia and then uh, I came back to Australia and we all decided to go away for New Year's Eve and she came along with this group of friends and uh, I'd sort of, it was quite funny because at that point I thought she was still with this other person so I talked myself out of her so I was just like no no she's she's not right and she's too actory, she's all these things <laughs> so I spent the whole time we were together convincing myself that it just wasn't right I was like no no 
And then we obviously got on quite well then and we drove back from this place together and she actually stopped on the side of the road, pulled over on the side of the road and uh, said, oh, look, I've got a massive crush on you. Wow, and I was so like, ballsy. oh, I know, and that made her so attractive. But then I'd done all this work to try and not like her anymore. So then I had to undo all those thoughts. So it was just a, just a mess. But, um, yes, her gumption was a massive tick and I was like, gee, that's, that's great. And then we decided to, you know, go on a date a week later and – now we're about to have our second child. So it's um it's a lovely story and it's been ten years, you know, and to yeah. think that I hadn't ever got past three and a half months with a girl, it's um yeah, it's testament to, to yeah, she's a she's a pretty special human. Yeah, she sounds like she's really present in herself and in the world. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, it's one of her great attributes and I think that almost of her friends would say that about her as well. She's um yeah, she sort of radiates uh, quite a unique light too. She's a very buoyant, positive person and um, just, a, a, yeah, people want to be around her because um, mm. you just sort of, you feel better about life when you're in her presence. Yeah. Oh. How did she kind of, was she instrumental in that sugar film? Yeah, I mean, she was to the degree that I think I, um, you know, I was pretty lazy in terms of my food choices at the time and um, I didn't eat terribly, but I just didn't give it much thought as to what impact and how foods could impact my moods or behaviour. So certainly when I met her, I, I, you know, I just started eating differently because I was, you know, eating what she was eating, and also I was trying to impress her. So I, I was. Um, <laughs> Sounds like she needed to be like impressed. Yeah, she. I had a lot of work to do. I mean, I was like literally, you know, smoking Marlboro Lights and eating takeaway food, and then I met her. I was like, that has to. I have to change. So it was a bit tough having green smoothies, you know, for the first couple of months of our relationship, and pretending that I enjoyed the taste of kale and things like that. But uh, I did start to just to notice how better I felt and especially mentally. I think that was the big shock to me is that I am someone who's sensitive to substances and whether it's caffeine or um, something more illicit or, or sugar, whatever it might be, I do feel the effects of it. So I was pretty shocked once I started eating better, just how the clarity of my mental health improved and sleeping and things like that. So uh, I probably ate like that without even thinking about it for a couple of years and then that's when I decided to make the film because there was a lot of press starting to emerge about sugar and really divided camps on it and I'd had an experience already of of noticing the benefits so I thought well let's see what happens and if it can help other people and they can um, have a similar experience to me then it's worth making and putting it out there. Because mm, it's like, it resonates so hugely, and maybe when I watched that sugar film and then I also watched 2040 the thing that struck me the most is that you're talking to sort of everyday people and connecting in a way that doesn't kind of disengage people. I think mm. often documentaries can do that. People just glaze over, whereas they're, it's sort of quirky and funny and there's a real kind of idea that you're just speaking to me, mm. not yeah. to like everybody. Yeah, that that was, you know, that's I think – um, a, a large intention and, and it's funny you say that because I do I love documentaries but I feel that they can of, often be um, a bit too reverent or a bit too mm. earnest and they can sort of appeal just to a certain demographic and uh, they're often very edgy and dark and that's why I love them but I think uh, some of these messages need to reach a broader um, uh, part of the population and so that was really why both these films I've tried to make really accessible and, and make you know, make a film that a family can watch and all mm. sit down together and understand how important these issues are and then drive home in the car and have a have a talk about them. Mm. And so to see the impact that the Sugar film had uh, for that reason was really wonderful and to see what difference it can make, not just to the public but, you know, in schools, in um, policy, you know, government parliamentary screenings. Mm. It was just fantastic. So um, 
I took a very similar approach with 2040. It's like how do we bring climate change, which is an even tougher subject it's to a sort big, of – It's a hard sell. To make uh, yeah. accessible. And I think that, you know, often a lot of the science of that is very complicated and people struggle to, to know what two degrees warming means or what anthropogenic means or mm. negative emissions. It's uh, often been left to scientists to do the bulk of the communicating and, and that's sometimes not their great strength. They're wonderful at what they do, but they need help in the communication. So I thought it's a really good opportunity to use film and playful animations and, and really make it accessible for people and distill yeah. some of that information into ways that we can really relate to around our own security and our, what we value and our kids' future and, and put it in a language that we can connect with. I mm. think that's really important. One thing I love too is seeing you becoming a dad in mm. that sugar film and then like four years later there's Velvet who mm. is just the most adorable kid on the planet. Oh, my <laughs> God. So good. If you haven't seen the film yet, she's just curly hair, just gorgeous. <laughs> How has that shaped what you made, like 2040, having Velvet? Oh, it's, it's the entire reason for making the film is that um, I probably hadn't engaged with the topic as as, as deeply as I, as I would have pre-having a daughter. And, and a lot of it was to do with, I think it was convenient that I wasn't sure if it was real. I'd sort of read some things that sort of alluded that it might be, you know, some kind of conspiracy or it wasn't real. This is a while ago. Mm. And that was really convenient for me to think that because, mm. you know, it, it meant that I didn't have to do anything about it. You know, I yeah. just had that sitting in the back of my mind. Going, well, I'm not sure if it's true yet. You know, and as I've learned subsequently, that's exactly the intention of the denial movement and the fossil fuel, they want to create that ambiguity in the same way that the sugar industry did, in the same way that tobacco did. That's their great strength is to, is to put out ambiguity so that we're not sure on something so we don't act on it. So I was certainly in that camp. And then I just, just increasingly fell overwhelmed by the constant torrent of stories and negativity that was coming in and, and how am I going to communicate this to my daughter and how am I going to describe, because I really do value humans, I think I really do believe in us. I think we're we're wonderful and we're creative in um, ingenuity and we do care deeply but we're just um, caught in a bit of a system sometimes and we're caught in a way of operating and we're, you know, um, we're governed by some people that don't have a lot of empathy and that are, uh, don't have our, our, our concerns at heart. So I didn't know how I was going to communicate that and, and so I just started researching and spent about a year talking to about 100 different academics and scientists from around the world to see if there were things we could do, if there were solutions to some of these huge ecological problems in particular and was, you know, pretty gobsmacked to, to hear how many things were going on and just thought, gee, people don't know about this. They don't, we're not hearing about how many people are doing great things or really care about these things or actually have some of the solutions. That narrative's just not out there. So uh, then I'm, I spent three years making the film for my daughter, which is a letter to my daughter showing her what the world could look like in 2040 if we put into practice these solutions right now. So it's a bit of an exercise in, in uh, reigniting imaginations and dreaming. I call it fact-based dreaming. Like everything mm -hmm. I show her in the future has to exist already now. I can't make it up. Um, but I guess it's just a, at a time where there are nihilistic narratives emerging where a lot of kids in particular are feeling really overwhelmed by the future. And rightly so. There are things we should be deeply concerned about and feel and let ourselves feel those things. But at the same time, it's important to remind them that um, there are people that deeply care and are doing wonderful things and there are solutions that exist. And if we actually um, come together and find a way to um, combine our powers, we can actually do this and turn it around. And, and I didn't think that three years ago, but I know categorically that it's possible now. Whether we do it is the great question, but I think the first step is knowing that it is possible and there are solutions that exist. Mm. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I love what you said about how we kind of have this narrative of post-apocalyptic kind of terrible earth shattering there's no trees left it's just a robot digging a hole or something (laughs) and the world's going to end and that seems to be that ongoing narrative do you find that putting consciously putting a positive image of the world in 2040 actually is connected into your idea about intention and thought and the power of thought? Of course it is, 100%. And I think we do it individually. We're often told to have our own goals or vision boards or dreams Mm. or what our aspirations are. We do it as a company. We do it as organizations, but we don't do it collectively for the planet. And I think that's really important because images are so powerful and, you know, the advertising industry knows it. Hollywood's known it for years that we are guided by imagery in a lot of ways. And I think if we're not careful right now, our only images of the future we're seeing are dystopian and they are devoid of nature and robots, as you said, invariably chasing humans who live in slums, you know. And I think we just have to be so careful with that because that's not the world I don't think any of us want. And they're the images we're showing our kids and we're sort of planting that seed in their subconscious that that's the reality of what they're going to face in the future. So I just wanted to, I guess, throw a different option or vision into the mix and say, Mm -hmm. hey, it doesn't have to look like that. We can have abundant nature in our cities and we can have thriving communities and and food everywhere and it doesn't have to be like that. So um, without, again, feeling utopian because that's why everything I show her already exists. You know, So there are places doing rooftop gardens. There are places with driverless cars. There are places with seaweed forest. Like this is all happening already. We just need to extrapolate it and upscale it and then we can have a really different world than the one we're on trajectory for right now. Mm, it's so exciting to me because I, I totally relate to that idea where I, that I was kind of a bit, oh, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, and so therefore I don't have to do anything about it. And it's a lovely place to sit in a way. Yeah, it's very convenient, <laughs> isn't it? Because once you actually really see the science and you go, oh, yeah. no, this is actually yeah. happening. That's right. The, the way the film flicks in time, so you see the years kind of go and then you see Velvet as, you know, like a young adult mm. and the t- the year you suddenly go, oh, it's not imaginary future. This is like not very far away really. That's right, yeah. Uh, um, it's quite scary. I'm a mum too and mm. I, you just look at this, these beautiful bright kids living in their like bubbles of, you know, just learning about the world and how f- fabulous it is and how fascinating nature is and, and it can get you really quite um, – devastated yeah do you still cope with anger and devastation yeah absolutely i have moments where um i i I feel overwhelmed by what's going on and quite often you know a report comes out even yesterday there was one about how many species we've destroyed and you can't not feel that but it's it's very hard to know what to do about that it's such a amorphous existential thing it's like Mm. it's horrible but how do i what do i do about it Mm. And that, again, was why we made the film and, and provided all these things that people could do to take action on. So 
it's important to acknowledge what's happening. I think it's really important. Not, not enough, enough of us do. Certainly our leaders don't. We need to be able to feel the depth of that to free up the space to then take action. But if we're constantly in denial of that, then we're, not, we're just going to almost be paralysed. And I think that's what a lot of people are going through. Um, it's easier just to push it away and get on with life and go, we'll, we'll work that out later. Um, but I think at a time where we need people to really get involved, you know, desperately, we need to find new ways to engage them. And, and I think that's a big part of that can be on the promise of a better future or the possibility of a better future. That's how we're motivated. Most psychology textbooks will say that. Uh, the work of Viktor Frankl will show that, that we, we, we need meaning in our lives to, to keep us moving forward. And I just get a bit nervous at the moment where there are people and even professors and all sorts of people saying that, you know, we might be doomed and that's it. I, I just find that a really dangerous and destructive narrative and it might be true for some people, but again, I think it underestimates the, the, the ingenuity and the creativity and the, the power that humans have. Um, and I feel if we can harness that, then we can, you know, do anything. We've, we've proven that in the past. Mm. And the fact that these solutions do exist now, we know these things are possible. Uh, the more people we can get focused on those, I think we've got a better chance of getting through it. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Because in a strange way, I, I came to a thought that if we actually have the power to change our environment for the worse, <laughs> then we absolutely have the power to change <laughs> it for the better, right? Absolutely. You that's know, it. I think that's part of the deniers. Mm-hmm kind of narrative that how how could we possibly change yeah. the how could we have such an effect on such an old planet and yeah. all of that kind of thing but we already have we already yeah, have that's right yeah. yeah big question i know you know you have keep i've got a keep cup you've got like you know reducing plastics all the things that we do on a micro level educating you know film all of those things but it seemed to me that some of these changes are just need to be so ginormous in the way that we operate our entire planet Mm. on a big scale what do you see people can do or be a part of like Mm. are there certain groups we need to be lobbying or yeah i mean i think it's um so in this country in australia there's a big you know a big issue is storytelling that i think there's a battle of narratives and our recent election showed that that um it was a failure of storytelling in the sense of saying that a lot of these solutions can strengthen communities and provide jobs and security, but that just wasn't communicated. So people get scared and they double down and they stick to what they know. And that's completely understandable because they're, they're valuing their livelihoods and trying to survive and, and, and feed their kids. So it's important we understand that, but we need desperately to start telling different stories about the future and what kind of reality we want to live in because the one we're doing right now is not serving us and it's going to destroy us. So how do we actually um, shape that narrative is a, is a big question. I think people can help in that way in terms of, I guess, taking action um, at, it, it, beyond just their household. So what can you do in your workplace? There might be a way to get together with other people in your office and say, hey, you know, go to the boss and say, we want to make a few changes here. We want to go solar. We want to deal with our food waste, whatever it might be. The same goes for your council. I mean, that's it's so exciting at the moment what's happening with councils right around the world and the city of Sydney even today announced a climate emergency. They're the 21st council in Australia to do it. We know that the UK government's declared a climate emergency. So it is starting to happen. That's how people can get involved to really go to their local council and step up. And even your school, like what's the school doing? Are they running off renewables? Are they dealing with their food waste? Have they got compost things going on? We need to actually come together with other people and just go above that little bit extra. I mean, it's important to do things at home, but it's really not enough at the moment. And we do need that systemic change. And and right through history, there's references that when a, a small group of passionate and determined people keep letting their voices be heard, 
wonderful things happen and there's so many examples of that that this is no different and I think we're actually the ball's already rolling on that if you look at Greta Thunberg and all the kids around the world that are that are taking the climate strike they are no different to the suffragettes they're no different to the abolitionists they're no different to interracial marriage in the US you know they all started by passionate people that were told to get off the streets you don't know what you're talking about you know you like they're saying now go back to school you know this is exactly what all these great movements heard so I think it's really important that we nurture to these kids we get behind them there's a big strike coming up globally on september the 20th here's our chance for adults parents teachers everyone to get out and support these kids and say we're listening to you we really agree with you and thank you for leading the way but we're right behind you because it is your future and we do want you to have the best possible future you can mm. okay that's it fantastic get and out there yeah all, the, all, all over Australia. Yeah, it is all over the world it is. all over the world yeah so this is a big moment for people to really join the kids and they're asking that too they're saying come out and support us so yeah this is a this is a really special day i think fantastic okay that's that's awesome what does your home look like how have you structured your life so we're pretty uh yeah my wife and i've always been particularly zoe we're probably we're quite i guess without labeling it we're pretty minimalist like we don't have a lot of things i've i've had this jacket i'm wearing for probably 15 years i'm zoe often complains that i wear jeans until they're completely fallen apart and ripped. <laughs> i just don't have that sort of consumption bug in me i think i'm lucky for that i don't get any um value or doesn't feel any need of me to consume and zoe's pretty similar she's very good at upcycling things and reusing things and we often prefer sort of old um, items we don't have a lot of stuff in the house um, we don't use a lot of energy in the house so we, we're pretty good in that sense um, you know, there's still areas we can improve on. Uh, we try and, because we can afford to, we're lucky, we, we try and buy foods at the local farmers' markets and support the farmers. Um, and we hope that enough people that can do that, if they did that, they'd bring the prices down and make it easier for everyone else. Uh, and also just to connect with who we are getting our food from, I think it's really important. That's another way that, that people can really help. There's, especially in this country, in Australia, there's such a duopoly with Coles and Woolies and, and they have such control over our food and alcohol and petrol and <laughs> pokies and all sorts. <laughs> Lots of things. Oh, it's, mate, a, yeah. <laughs> it's an empire. Once you start, when you throw sugar in the mix as oh well and God. all of the addiction stuff, I know. <laughs> and that's why, you know, that's such Huge. a powerful thing people can do is if they start buying their food and sending signals, you know, and trying to get it from all different sources, mm. that's really powerful. Um, but again, it's, it's a price issue. But, you know, if those that can do it can do it, it it'll make a big difference. Um, but, yeah, apart from that, we're, we're pretty simple. And I think most important, I, I'd say, is that I'm just – really careful now with how I talk to Velvet about nature. And I think um, one of the things I discovered in the, in the research was just the, the metaphors and how they've changed for how we view the planet. And if you go back pre-scientific revolution, the language that people use for the planet was really different. Like the Chinese used words like um, we're reverent guests of the land. Mm. Uh, the Egyptians had, uh, you know, Mother Earth and you know, Father Sky, like Native American Indians. Um, Aboriginals were custodians of the land. And then you get Descartes and Francis Bacon coming along and, you know, there's lots of lots of benefits to the scientific revolution, but the language around the planet changed and they started saying we need to tame and hound nature in our wanderings, um, enter and penetrate her every hole, like oh, really aggressive language. And, you know, since that time, I think we really have separated how we view the planet and it is something we extract from and it's a big cold rock floating through this brutal galaxy and we've sort of lost a bit of meaning for it so i do really try with velvet to make sure she retains that significance of how special it is and how that she gives it 
meaning and, and whenever we're out in it and or trees or nature that I make sure she's valuing it because I think that's a really interesting way that we can save the planet is making sure our kids retain that value for it and give it meaning and then they'll want to defend it then they'll want to fight for it but I think a lot of us are a bit um, idle on it right now is because we've lost that significance of it mm. and um, I'm not sure that we're going to turn things around unless we can change those metaphors and, and bring back a real reverence for it again because mm, it's definitely a disconnect in the way that we live Just massively, massively. I, yeah I was reading some studies last last week that were pretty alarming is that three quarters of UK children spend less time outdoors than US prison inmates. Oh my God. And that 93% of Americans now spend their day, uh, not sorry, spend 93% of their time in a vehicle or inside. So if we're not connected to nature, if we're not outside and we're not amongst it, then how can we be valuing it? How do we notice when the species go extinct and we don't hear the mm. birds crying anymore or the, the butterflies disappear? We're just not there. It's out of mind and out of sight. So, again, it's a time where we're really going into that sort of tech space and we're not being outside as much as the very moment that we need to be sitting outside in nature and noticing what's happening to it. So, again, that's just a really important thing I think we can teach our children um, mm. is to get them to really understand how important it is. Yeah. Do you think part of it is a fear of nature? nature because we've lost some of the knowledge that we used to have about how to live with the land yeah it's a great point i do i really do i think um a lot of people because they haven't spent much time of it we you know we've had it our, our senses have been hijacked a little bit through culture and media and films and you know spiders are terrifying and snakes are terrifying and all these things or oh, you know you live in australia don't you you know get bitten by snakes and spiders all the time and it's you know that's a narrative that's out there and so yeah people are reticent to go on a simple bushwalk or or do those things again because they fear they're going to get hurt so i I do think that's definitely an element um but then you know again you know someone like david attenborough is just so so wonderful because he he is someone that brings that meaning and wonder back into it so I, i really hope that we have more of that emerging i think we need um, equivalents of him uh, in a whole range of areas to just try and bring back the significance of, of nature again and try and put it to the forefront and put it in the mainstream media. Otherwise, it's just going to slip away, you know, and mm. um, before we know it, we'll all just be – nature will be images on our screens of, of lions and tigers, you know, and, and we'll have these pretend versions of, of, of what isn't there anymore. Yeah, absolutely, because it's so innate in kids, isn't it, the wonder and awe? of nature like my son is just obsessed with animals and obsessed so with the world them. that's you know? right Ab- like absolutely obsessed with leaves and worms and, exactly yeah you know yeah so it's all there that we don't the, the work's been done for us we just have to maintain it and not cut off that supply and i think that's what happens is that that's there but you know if you're shoving a screen in front of a child at three and suddenly they disconnect and those bright images that are designed to entrap them and bring them in are going to be more compelling than the stick just sitting there uh, again, it comes back to what we were talking about, imaginations, that we don't let our children be bored anymore or just be idle and pick up that stick and suddenly turn it into a magic wand or something else that's dazzling and beautiful. Mm. If they don't have the time to, to do that, then they're not going to find that part of themselves and that dreaming part. They're going to just be bombarded by information. And I think that's what happens with a lot of people these days. They don't give themselves mm. that time. If they've got a spare 20 seconds at a cafe waiting for a friend or on the bus, they'll put on their phone and check Twitter and scroll through Instagram and it's just shutting down such a beautiful part of who we are as humans. And I think yeah. um, more than ever, we need to reignite that part of people and their imaginations um, if we're going get to get out of this. 
Mm, be still, right? Be still. Magic happens when you're still. It does. That's really true. Yes, Things just come out of nowhere that you as, you, as you know, you just think, oh, where did that idea come from? But you actually created the space to let it come in. And I think uh, we're not doing that anywhere near as much as we used to. Do you have a meditation practice that you use or something in your life that you allow? Because it strikes me that you would be a very busy person. I mean, you've come from one mm. interview to another, you know. Yeah. Do you have practice? Um, yeah, I mean, probably my, my flaw is that I I can overwork and become a workaholic and f- pray victim to this, and then I catch myself and think, oh, and then I go back and I reset again and I start my meditation again and I get healthy again, and then slowly but surely I get busy again, and it's just <laughs> it's been a cycle I've done my whole life. So I've had a series of different meditation practices, and I've been really good at it sometimes, and then terrible at sometimes, and I've learnt to be kind to myself with it and not have an all or nothing approach and. Quite often now, I'll just do simple things like um, just do like a walking meditation. So if I've got time or in between meetings, I'll just be really conscious of every step on the ground or what sound can I hear down this street right now or just just force myself and train that muscle just to be present. doesn't mean sitting still with a, you know, a mask on with nice smelling oils in a, in a room. You can actually just choose to train yourself to be aware at any moment of the day and have a moment of stillness or just eat that lunch and, you know what, just actually – Chew, yep, yep. Just notice it going down. You're like, just be conscious as much as you can. And I've found that for me really helps rather than trying to have this forced practice that I have to adhere to all the time. Mm. Um, just the way my brain works in particular, I, I sort of set myself up to fail if I'm not careful. And if I don't reach 10 minutes or 15 minutes, I go, ah, oh, you're not doing it quite right. You know, it's all that stuff. So um, each to their own. Some people um, are fine at doing that and, and really love that. But um, I've just have to find ways that I can do it or if I'm sitting on a plane or in the car, just, just find moments where I can just have a bit of time to myself. Yeah, because it's reframing that inner critic, right? Do you have a really that really strong inner monologue, that inner critic constantly? Uh, or no, I've, I've learned to quieten it down, but I did. I mean, it was crippling, as I, as I said mm. before, that kind of... I feel like I was a different person before 30 because I let that voice dominate who I was and it was so limiting and it was so destructive and it just it would just speak in really dangerous tones and and uh once I learned to observe that and then quieten it a little bit and now it has different versions it still still have a voice everyone does but I think it's probably a little bit more supportive than it used to yeah. be and more encouraging and <laughs> more on Damon's team yeah and I can channel I've always had a lot of energy of being that person, but probably in my 20s, I channeled, channeled it into quite negativity, negative aspects and things that weren't good for me and illicit mm-hmm. things. And I just really went down that path. And I, I remember actually someone saying to me, you know, imagine you turned all that energy into creative. You know, imagine you used that to enhance your life. You know, think how wonderful it would be. And that was quite a turning point for me. And, and mm-hmm. I feel like I do that now. My, my wife gets very annoyed because I do struggle to stop. I'm always doing things, but... I feel like now it's um, usually for the betterment of someone else or myself or my family. Like I'm, I try and use that energy for for, for good instead of self destruction. Mm. I'm just curious. I know you mentioned psychedelics before, mm. and you used a word I'd never heard of yep. when you said that you. Were, so you were in the Amazon. Well, there's a sort of um, a drink. Uh, it's made from um, a vine. It's called it's called ayahuasca. And it's a bit of a ceremony, so it's an ancient ceremony. It's um, a lot of shamans use it in the jungle, and they mix up. Well, in our particular example, they sort of spent about three hours putting this um, mixture together, and then you sit around and we talked about what intention we wanted to get out of this particular experience. And then we were just sitting in the middle of the about four hours from anywhere, and 
you drink the the liquid and then um, they call it doc, doctor ayahuasca and then you it basically takes through different aspects of your life around health and career and love and it shows you the things that you probably need to improve on and it can be really confronting for some people uh, and there is a shaman there who's with you the whole time and he if you do it properly there is a set of songs that they sing to guide you through it and make sure that you're safe and they nurture you through on your journey. And, um, yeah, I did that with my wife uh, probably about six years ago and we both had quite a remarkable experience in terms of just learning things at a deeper level about yourself and opening yourself mm-hmm. up creatively and all sorts of things, getting out of your own way. Whatever you want to get out of it, you, you'll get, um, but it can be very, very, very strong for people. Um, but for us, I just only, I only needed to do it once and I really got all the things I needed to do out of it. Mm. And, um, yeah, had a very lasting memory. I mean, particularly my wife, who was very apprehensive about that. She sort of came at it from more of a Western mindset and thought, oh, is this a drug? And, um, and, but mm. by the time we'd spent a couple of weeks in the Amazon and you'd hear all the stories and you realize how ingrained it is in their culture and they even give it to their children and it's all part of the ceremony of connecting at a deeper level with yourself and nature and whatnot, then it's just all that Western thinking disappears and mm. you actually see it as a bit of a healing or a, or a spiritual awakening um, to some degree. And, and my wife had a, had a wonderful experience doing it as well. Mm. Wow. It strikes me that you've had a very interesting life over there, David. Yeah, I've cer- I feel um, I've certainly extracted as much as I can. I mean, I, I really I think that, you know, we do. We have this one little moment in all the history of space and time. We get this precious time on the planet. Like so many of us are doing things that we, we don't want to be doing and we're wasting that precious time, you know. And I think I remember writing, I was in hospital really sick when I was in my 30s and I wrote a letter to myself and I was in a, a hospital room with, uh, three other 80, 85-year-olds, and I, I pretended that I was 85. It was two in the morning and wrote a letter to myself about my life and, and was I happy with what I'd done as an 85-year-old? And I, I didn't want to get to 85 and think, oh, you know what, you just you let those thoughts dominate you and suppress you and not tell the stories you want to tell. You hid behind acting. You hid behind all these other things. No, I'm, I'm, I'm determined to, to write a different letter to myself as an 85-year-old. So that's been a big motivation for me in, in terms of trying to soak up as many experiences as I can and many adventures and meet as many people and explore things and try and make a difference in some way because I do think that, um, yeah, it's, it's very precious what we've got here and um, you've got to make the most of it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, you are welcome. And to find find your film, I could talk to you all day. It's so fascinating. Um, So to find your film, it's out on release now. In Australia, yeah, it's at the cinemas now, 2040. It's showing Mm -hmm. at most cinemas around the country. And then soon people will be able to put on their own screening. So in their school or office or community, we've got a special way you can do that. And then it will be, I think it's showing on the airlines in the next couple of weeks and then um, online. So it'll be on various platforms. And then it releases uh, in Europe later this year. And then I think America early next year or straight to one of the online platforms as well. So um, we've got all the social media channels. So if you want to follow us, that's that's where you go. Fantastic. I'll put it all in the show notes. And what is your 2040? Is that the website? Yeah, what what, what's your 2040? What's your 2040? Dot com. Yeah. Dot com. Yeah. Go find your action Yeah, plan. there's so many things you can do. Correct. Yeah. And then go to the Amazon jungle and have a <laughs> <laughs> um, brain-opening experience. <laughs> yeah. do, you, do we need to talk about seaweed, given that you guys are sponsoring? Or Actually, you've got a... I'd love you to talk about it. So okay. could you explain yeah. to us, because we're fundraising for the Seaweed Regeneration Project. Mm. Do you want to tell us why that particular project is really special? 
Yeah, well, it's probably out of all the solutions that I discovered, one of the most exciting because it's just so, there's so little known about it. So seaweed is the fastest growing organism on the planet. So it can grow about a half a metre a day, some of the big seaweeds, and, and up to 50 metres long. So it just, what that means is it's just, sequestering carbon out of the atmosphere really quickly it's like a turbocharged sequesterer but at the same time it actually helps to regenerate the oceans so it takes it creates some takes the carbon dioxide out of the water so it's more alkaline so the sea creatures can thrive it creates a habitat for the fish they can lay their eggs there but also the seaweed itself can actually be used for food as we know or a biofuel or even plastics even fibers now so it's just this incredibly simple solution that hasn't been looked at yet with all these cascading benefits and a lot the scientists we've spoken to have said that of the ocean between Australia and California, there's about 100 square kilometres of ocean, that just over 1% of that ocean, if we put these big seaweed farms out at sea, they could sequester almost our current emissions right now. So, oh. And once you cut off the seaweed, once it goes below about 1,000 metres, it can store at the bottom of the ocean because of the weight of the water. So it really is quite a phenomenal um, experiment um, uh, solution, I mean. And, and this experiment we've started is that we've got permission to launch the first seaweed platform in Australia off Bruni Island in Tasmania. So we've set up like a crowd fund. Um, so it's wonderful that you guys are going to help us with that because uh, <laughs> I'd really love it if Australia could sort of really lead the way in this climate solution. It's a great opportunity given how much ocean we have. Mm. Um, so it's just one of those really untouched uh, there's no political aspect to it. There's no vested interests. It's just a really clean solution that I hope we can really um, upscale very quickly. Mm, absolutely, yeah. And to get on board, I'll put the link to where we can fundraise below. Um, last year, we hit 50,000 for Care Australia. So, Fantastic. Yeah, so our audience is just Wow. Awesome. Well, the good thing about this too is yeah. that the Intrepid Foundation, who, who we're doing with it, is match funding every dollar. So if we mm. raise 50,000 for this, that would be 100,000. Yeah. So it's just uh, it's wonderful. So thank you for your support. Oh, you're welcome. Well, let's all get on board. And it's something we can actually do and not feel kind of stuck by. No, you know? that's right. It's a really it's wonderful like, solution. Yeah, yeah. This is how you can step up even more and really create a large-scale solution. Mm. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Damon. My let's pleasure. Let's get to growing some seaweed. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Cheers. You've been listening to a podcast called Just Make the Thing with me, Claire Tonti. And this week with Damon Gamow, you can find Damon on Instagram at damon.gamow, G-A-M-E-A-U, and also his beautiful wife Zoe at Zoe Gamu on Instagram as well, or Gamow. Uh, you can also head to the 2040 website. That's whatsyour2040.com. The links are all in the show notes below to get your action plan. I've done it. It's really practical. It's not airy-fairy and it's really targeted to what you can achieve in your life. So I highly recommend going over there to, to do that and see the film if you can. We're screening it in conjunction with The Weekly Planet and a live podcast with Will Anderson and Charlie Corson on the 21st of July. Um, tickets are through Try Booking and I'll link that below. So come along and see the film and listen to the guys have a, a podcast on disaster movies. I'll be there too and I'd love to see your face. So please come along to that and buy a ticket. All proceeds will be going to our Regeneration Seaweed Project with Intrepid and 2040. So that's our Planet Broadcasting fundraiser for this year. We're aiming again for $50,000 and Intrepid will match every dollar, which means we could potentially raise $100,000 for this seaweed project to really start making a difference um, 
with climate change. There's lots more information about that incredible project in the film 2040, but also at our website and I'll link everything below. It's just got such incredible potential and it's non-political. It doesn't disrupt any of the current systems we've got in place. It's a simple incredible project that I think can make a real impact. You can find me at Claire Tonti on Instagram. That's where I let's tell stories, but I'm also on Twitter at Mrs. Sunday Movies. For more podcasts like this one, you can head to planetbroadcasting.com. That's our network podcasting thing where you can find lots of podcasts made by Australian podcasters, including Human Ordinary, which has an episode on climate as well that's just been released. Um, And if you've liked or to be heard, please subscribe and rate and review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods from. It makes so much difference. And share with a friend. That's actually the biggest thing you could do. If you love this show, please share it with someone. That really helps to get our show out there. And as always, a big thank you to Raw Collings for editing this week's show. And ooh, if you have listened for a long time and you know Chanel Lucheb, uh, my wonderful friend, she has had her baby. She is happy and healthy and so he's a, her little girl. So that's all good on that front and we'll have more from her soon, I'm sure, to tell us all about how she's going. All right, till next week, go take some action. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.